Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning, both here and online. Super glad that you guys are with us. This is Thanksgiving week, so we totally recognize this is a busy season for all of us. Whether you have family coming in from out of town, whether you're going out of town, whatever that might be, uh, so glad that you are here with us this morning and that you prioritized this time. So it is my honor this morning to continue our series called Exiles as we walk through some of the topics that surface specifically in the book of Titus. And if you missed last week with Pastor Marvin talking about what faithfulness in our marriages looks like, you are going to want to check that out. It was a sweet, beautiful opportunity to see a family within our congregation kind of share their stories um, and integrated with some of the things that Pastor Marvin had to say. It was, just, it was just a really amazing message. And I am going to pick us up as we continue in chapter one. We're going to look at verse seven, but there are a couple of things that you need to know ahead of time, whether this is your first time here, whether you've been gone for a couple of weeks and you're like, exiles, when did we start that? Or even if you were here last week. So let me just kind of do a couple of things to sort of set tone to kind of put us all on the same page, okay? First, Paul is writing this letter that we call the book of Titus to a young man named Titus who was working among the people of the island of Crete in the first century. Now, Crete was known to be a place that was characterized by pluralism. And if you're like, What's pluralism? Pluralism was this idea that in Crete, there was this sort of swirling melange, this stew of all of the ideologies and philosophies and all of the different things of the day. And at Crete, because it was kind of this crossroads of trade and all these other things like that, Crete kind of prided itself of being kind of a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Right? It's kind of like, hey, you got some what? Something from the, yeah, sure, we'll take some of that. We'll blend it in with some Greek philosophy. We'll blend that over here with some other stuff coming from North Africa. Like, we're going to have this really cool stew of just all of these different ideas and things like that that are kind of swirling together. And so Paul writes to Titus to say, this is what it looks like to live godly in the midst of that kind of a culture. If you're like me, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty relevant for our day. That sounds an awful lot like our culture, doesn't it? A little bit of this, a little bit of that. I talk to people regularly that are like, oh yeah, man, I love Pastor Marvin. I got some Deepak Chopra. I got some other things over here. Like I just listened to like a jigsaw puzzle, all these different things. And I'm like, you're listening to Pastor Marvin and Deepak Chopra at the same time, dude? Like, You're not aware that there's kind of a radical divergence between? No, no, I just kind of put it all together and swirl it all up. It's my own particular cocktail of faith and philosophy. Whoa. I think that there's a lot of things that are similar to us today, right? That were similar to Crete. In fact, um, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite quotes recently is from a South African theologian. His name is Dr. Corne Becker, and he says, um, we think that we are a church attempting to engage an increasingly secular society. We're not. We are an increasingly secular church attempting to engage an increasingly pagan society. See, brothers and sisters, I think our world, and particularly our culture, they are waking up to spiritual realities all around them. They are in the movies they watch, the stories that they read, they're in the stories that they tell each other, but it never occurs to them that the people of the living God would have anything to offer them to make sense of it. And you want to know what's worse? Very often when they come to us to make sense of it, we can't. We've forgotten those things. We don't know how to help them work through those things. I think Dr. Becker is right. Our day is not so different than Titus's day. Second, Paul starts this letter to Titus with instructions regarding the appointment of elders, or what you will oftentimes see translated as overseers. So if, if you're listening this morning and you're like, Yeah, so Jack, I'm not an elder. I don't plan on being an elder. So really, what's the point? The point is that even though these things were directed to Titus to help him sort of establish a baseline for the selection of elders and overseers, leaders within the church, the reality is is that it's just a pretty good rule of thumb for what it looks like to live a godly life in Christ Jesus for all of us. So yes, 
while the instructions are specific to elders and overseers, it's not like the list is one that we'd look at and just go like, oh, well, I don't need to be any of those things. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good list for all of us. So we're going to take this passage and we're going to say, yes, but also. Yes, this was a list of criteria for overseers and elders, but really also it's, it's a good list for all of us. Okay? And that is where we're going to pick up this morning in chapter one of the book of Titus, verse seven. It's just one verse. So let's read it together. You ready? Here we go. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. All right. Now there's a lot there. I like being a Bible geek. What I would tell you is, is that you could take almost any word in that one verse and you could pull out one word and build an entire series around that one word. But we're not going to do that. We're going to take one word and we're going to really focus on it this morning. And it is the word that you see here translated as quick-tempered. As followers of Jesus, like elders, we are to be characterized as being a people who are not quick-tempered. And that's a fascinating phrase here for a couple of reasons. It is the Greek word orgilos. And here's some things that you should know about that word. First of all, this is the only time in the New Testament that it occurs. Only time. It's the only time that the word orgilos is used, and that's translated as quick-tempered. And it's an adjective, not a noun, meaning it is an adjective that describes the elder or the overseer. An elder or overseer is not to be characterized by being quick-tempered. But the word orgilos has a root word that is a noun, and that word is the word orge. What you should know about the word orge is, is that even though orgilos only shows up once, orge shows up kind of a lot. It means specifically to be angry, to be agitated, to have violent emotion. And here's the really cool thing. If you do the research on the word, I love that Thayer's Greek lexicon actually says that in the Greek, the word actually creates this image. It is as a fruit on a vine that is swelling with juice to the point of bursting. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Next time someone's angry, you'd be like, dude, you're juicy. You need to calm down. You're bursting. Like you're bursting with juice, man. Right? I'm told that the word juicy doesn't mean that, but you get the idea. Like bursting. We'll say bursting. Okay? So like, third, the other thing you need to know is, is that in the New Testament, when the word orge is used, it is also used of God. God gets angry. Jesus gets angry angry. In Mark 3, 5, we read this, and Jesus looked around with orge, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. So what do you know about that? What do you learn about that? Well, we learned that it can't be sinful. It can't be wrong to be angry because God gets angry. Jesus got angry. That means that it is not wrong to be angry, because if God does it, it can't be sin, right? We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Don't worry. And an overseer here, as those of us who are Christ followers, is not to be quickly angered. Here's the thing. I like this. I'm going to use a different word this morning, though. I don't just think, I don't think the word angry quite gets to it for us. So what I'm going to say is, I think if you kind of look at the way that things sort of work around this concept through scripture and work for us this morning, I'm going to use the word outrage. It's not just being angry, guys. This is about being outraged. This is about that, that sort of bubbling up, that kind of like, oh, I just can't even believe And that for sure is a relevant concept for us today. Why? Because we live in a culture of outrage, don't we? It is the water that we swim in. It is the air that we breathe every day. Have you noticed the primary emotions anymore that are everywhere you go are fear and anger and the resulting sense of outrage as a result? 
I've often wondered that instead of saying, hi, how are you? We literally should walk up to each other and say, hi, what outraged you today? Oh, hi, nice to, nice to see you again. What outraged you today? Oh man, this guy cut me off in traffic. I mean, like we just, we just boil this sense of outrage. I have more than one friend who if 99 things went great for them that day and one thing fell short of their expectation, do you know what they want to talk about for the next hour? That one thing. It's everywhere. Our culture keeps us orgilos. It keeps us short-tempered, quick to outrage. We're always sort of teetering on this precipice of outrage. And if you think that I'm overshooting here, friends, I have a friend whose brother-in-law was asked to lead a prominent Christian organization that everyone in this room would likely know if I told you what it was. The purpose of this organization is to galvanize American Christians to vote in a particular direction. And here's the thing. He agreed to do it, and then he got to work over the course of a year bridge building. Like he set about and said, to do what is best for the American people and to galvanize votes in a particular direction, I'm going to start with collaboration. I'm going to reach across the aisle in both directions. I'm going to try to get people to collaborate. I'm going to take these competing factions, and I'm going to try to help them to be able to work together. And over the course of a year, began to see some progress. And then was carted before the board and said, Joel, you are not doing what we want you to do. And he said, man, I'm really sorry. Like, I, I don't understand. What do you mean? And they said, we have two tools, fear and anger. Use them or we will find someone who will. He resigned later that week. Most recently, whistleblower Francis Haugen exposed the fact that Facebook's key algorithm for content generation and display is based on a desire to polarize people toward extremes, recognizing in particular that negative reactions, negative emotions or emojis, whatever that might be, anything that is negative tends to cue more viewership, more clicks, and more time spent than positive reviews, positive emotions, or positive likes. She actually worked at Facebook for a couple of years, garnered all of the evidence, and then went live saying, I think this is wrong. The very algorithm that Facebook uses is designed to push people to extremes where the primary emotion that they experience is outrage. If you're like, well, where are you getting that, Jack? I'd be like, watch. The algorithms take people who have very mainstream interests and they push them towards extreme interests. You can be someone center left and you'll get pushed to radical left. You can be center right, you'll get pushed to radical right. You can be looking for healthy recipes, you'll get pushed to anorexia content. Did you guys hear that? Arguably the largest social media platform on the planet is working to push you to places where your responses will become increasingly extreme, either in the direction that you already lean or in polarization and villainization against those who do not. The largest social media platform on the planet is trying to keep you orgilos. Why? Because orgilos is good for business, baby. Man, you keep people outraged, man. They click, they read, they click, they read. Like, it's good. It's bad. We are in a culture of outrage. We are a culture of orgilos. We are easily angered about almost everything in our worlds all the time. From the guy who cuts you off in traffic to the way that our politics swing or the way that that friend that you have posted that one thing that one time, how dare he, right? We do this in our lives. We do this in our families. We even do this at the restaurants that we go to. Believe me, my wife and daughter both work in the restaurant industry. I am shocked at the things that people complain to them about and the way they are treated as they just go about their jobs. So why is that? Why are we so susceptible to outrage or this idea of being orgilos? 
And what do we do about it if we are supposed to be, as the people of God, people who are not characterized by that? What do we do? Well, first, I would say that we just have to know what outrage is. And you might be like, oh no, we know what outrage is. Trust me, you don't have to define that term for us, Jack. But I would say this, I know that we know that outrage is fundamentally a function of anger. But when I started asking the question, yeah, but, but what is it really? Like, where does it come from? What's at the heart of it? I think that really it has this element of a holy hunger at its core. And let me tell you what I mean. When someone cuts you off in traffic, right? When someone like cuts you off and then gives you a creative hand gesture to let you know that you're number one, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, why is it that you suddenly erupt in rage? And you're like, well, because he endangered my life and the life of my two-year-old in my back seat. And I'd be like, that's a really good reason. But here's the thing. You carried it on far beyond just the pure cortisol primal response of getting out of the way. You carried it into the day. You told everybody that day at work about that thing. You kicked your dog when you got home. You railed to your spouse about it. And then you sent your kids to bed early because you were still angry. Why? Why? Because here's why. Deep in your heart, there is a knowledge that the world we live in is not the world we were designed for. I firmly believe that in the core of your being, there is a God-designed hunger for the way he expects things to be. And the distance that we are from it is the space of outrage. There's something in you that knows this is not how things are supposed to be. There's something in you that knows countries aren't supposed to invade other countries just to steal their resources and destroy their civilians. There's something in you that knows that people aren't supposed to treat people like this. You're not supposed to be treated like this. There's something in you that knows that spouses aren't supposed to do that to their spouses. There's something in you that that experiences that disconnect between the way God designed things to be and everything you see around you. And in that space, I think we grieve. I think it goes back to Eden. I think we get outraged because we remember what it should be and what it is not, and we sense the disconnect between the two, and we grieve. And I think everybody responds to grief differently. Some people get really sad, some people get really disconnected, but the vast majority of us get angry. In 1999, one of my favorite movies, The Matrix, has Morpheus saying to the main character, there is something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there all the same, like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. I think that's what we mean when we get outraged. I think that's what we sense. But here's the problem with that. Most often, the gap for us isn't really between our reality and God's reality, is it? It's the gap between our current reality and what we want reality to be. That's different. The reality that we want and that we think is right and just and good and best is at best still a distorted version of what God says is good and right and just and best. So our anger drives us to achieve a version of just that isn't really just. It drives us to fight for versions of fairness that aren't really fair. It drives us to demanding payment for other people's sins while somehow conveniently overlooking our own. Outrage does that to you. If you don't believe me, when is the last time you've been in a car with someone who cut someone else off in traffic and the person you're with did this? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, can you believe what I just did? My nerve, I, I am so angry at me right now. That guy was probably late to work and I just ruined his day. I am so angry at me right now. 
It's like, it doesn't happen, does it? We are very aware of what we perceive the gap to be between our reality and the reality that we desire, but we are not too conscious of everyone else's reality and the reality that they desire, or more importantly, the reality that God desires for all of us. And brothers and sisters, I will just tell you, the reality that God designs for us is the concept of shalom. We talk about it all the time here. It is not just the idea of peace, man, the absence of fighting. When you look at the biblical concept of shalom, it is beautiful. It is the place of peace, but it is the place where there is the piecing back together of everything the way that God intended it to be. And when we get outraged, I think we are sensing that. In our culture of outrage, we seem to be kept consistently in a spot where we are very aware of that gap and nothing is as it should be. Nothing works like it should People don't act like they should. Reality doesn't work like it should. And so we are angry. More than any other nation that I have been to or observed or had the part or the privilege to be able to see in my 48 years, I will tell you that we more than anyone else are the angriest people on the planet, brothers and sisters. And you know what's interesting? It's not just that we're angry. It's that we can get there in like 0.04 seconds flat. You don't believe me? I will bet you that with just a mild cocktail of sports, politics, religion, and relationships, I could drive every person in this auditorium out the door in less than five minutes. We can get there fast. We are, as a people individually, but also as a people collectively, or gilos, we are quick to anger. And to be fair, there is a place for outrage. We like to go to passages like Jesus getting angry and chasing people out of, the, out of the temple, like the money changers and stuff like that. Or we like to talk about God's wrath for sin. We say things like, well, Jesus got angry. I'm angry. This is what I'm angry about. So it's okay for me to rage right now. You know what I particularly like? I like how as Christians, we don't get angry. We have righteous indignation, right? I'm not angry. I have righteous indignation. Oh, well, that makes it okay then. Do whatever you want, right? Here's the problem with that. A, Jesus was perfect, which means even his anger was perfect. And so he did not sin in his anger. Number two, or B, Jesus was angry about people having barriers placed before them in their attempt to worship God, which is seldom what we're angry about. And then C, I'd remind you that while anger is a legit human emotion, just like sadness or disgust or fear or joy, it doesn't mean that just because we have it or because we feel it, that we therefore have carte blanche to conform to it, cave to it, or to be swallowed up by it into whatever degree of rage we want to have or to express. In fact, I would tell you that it is dangerous to live in a state of outrage. And there are really practical reasons for that. Paul didn't just tell Titus that an elder, an overseer, we as the people of God should, be, should not be quick-tempered because angry people are hard to be around, although they are. He told Titus that because being anger, angry all the time, being in this state of outrage, having this continual state of orgilos is actually hard on us. It's damaging to us physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. We are not designed to operate in that space for long periods of time. And we are certainly not meant to live in them, brothers and sisters. Now, I call this the Knight Rider effect. If you are under 30, I'm apologizing in advance, but don't worry, we're going to help you out. Um, when I was a kid, there was a show called Knight Rider. It ran from 1982 to 1986. Anybody? Yeah, right? Okay, so in Knight Rider... Kit was a bulletproof, artificially intelligent supercar that had all kinds of James Bond-esque gadgets. And similar to other shows of the time period, what would happen in each episode is, is Kit and his driver, Michael Knight, 
would get backed into a corner where you just weren't sure what was gonna happen, right? Like, I mean, the, the tension would amp up, right? And like, you'd be sitting there like I was with your TV tray and your Capri Sun and it would cut to commercial and you'd just be like, <laughs> I mean, like, you just would be like, try, like, what's gonna happen, man? Right? And then the show would come back on and you'd be like, I wonder what's gonna happen. And then the moment would happen where there was one particular feature that Kit had that would allow him to escape danger. Anyone remember what it was? Turbo boost! Yes! There was a button on the console that Michael could push, and it would send Kit sailing over obstacles, leaping canyons, outstripping pursuers. Turbo boost was awesome. And if you missed turbo boost, I got you, fam. Check this. Yeah! Yeah, man. 80s TV. They just don't make them like they used to, right? (laughs) But here's the thing, guys. Turbo Boost was only meant to be used in the most dire of circumstances and for really limited, short boosts. (laughs) It was almost always used at the apex of the action when there was no other option But if Michael would have just like gotten in the car, started it up, pressed turbo boost, driven it around each episode, what would have happened is it would have been catastrophically dangerous long-term for both Kit and for Michael. It's not meant to live like that. I read on a GearHead website that if your car doesn't run on special effects, then too much boost can be a bad thing. You can blow a head gasket, you can hit the limits of your fuel system, or overheat the incoming air so much that you actually lose power instead of generate it. And in extreme situations, you can actually do this. (laughs) I love how quickly he got out of the car. That's a piston right there, literally, right? Like the engine, I mean, And that same thing is true of us. Our anger and our outrage, they are meant to be super short-term limited boosts for a very specific reason, usually a primal one, to get us out of danger or to bring massive resources to bear for a specific reason and then bring us back into balance where we operate on our manufacturer's tolerances. But when we operate in continual outrage mode, we run the risk of doing what happened in the second video there. We push ourselves to the point where we just eventually explode. Now, I talked to a couple of doctor friends of mine about the fact that when we experience continual outrage, there are definitive neurochemical reactions that occur in our body. This is what they said. Prolonged outrage can even be linked to things like memory loss, risk-seeking behaviors, increased rate of infection, autoimmune diseases, obesity, and learning disabilities. And I would tell you that while there is no single factor for why things happen the way that they do, I would just point to the extreme forms of violence in our culture right now, brothers and sisters. I'm talking about things like the school shootings, the political and religious polarization, the increase in domestic violence that we see in our culture, and the general sense of violence everywhere, and I would point to the fact that all of these things are indicators that we are running our engines, both individually and collectively, past the point of manufacturer's tolerances, and we are in danger of blowing up. So how do you function in a culture like that? How do we, as the people of the living God, operate when everything around us is swirling with that? What do we do? Yep, we may get angry, but we are not to be orgilos. We are not to be quick to anger. And like Jesus, we do not move beyond our anger into violence and sin. 
I think that to answer the question of how we operate, we're actually going to need to point to a passage in Galatians 5, where we see what is commonly called the fruit of the Spirit. And what I would remind you is, is that there's a couple of things. Number one, when we read this list, what I want you to note is, note the things that Paul says first are the fruit of the flesh. They are remarkably similar to the things that Paul is telling Titus to select elders who are also guarding against. Right? So it's like, you can almost do this sort of overlay, where in Titus, Paul's like saying, hey, find elders, overseers, find the people of God who are not operating out of the fruit of the flesh. So notice that first. And the second thing is, I want you to take a look at the things that are listed as the fruit of the Spirit, specifically in the latter part. So here we go. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now that's a pretty good list of the things that the Spirit of the living God produces in us, isn't it? That's a pretty good list. But I want to focus specifically on one of those pieces. And you'll note, by the way, you'll hear theologians say this all the time. This passage is not about the fruits of the Spirit. It's about the fruit of the Spirit. These aren't like one tree that's got like six different kinds of fruit on it. It's all one fruit. You might call these things flavors, right? So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the flavors of the fruit. If you were to say, what does the fruit of the Spirit taste like? It tastes like those things. It's not independent fruits. We don't get to say like, well, I'm really good at love, but I'm really terrible at joy. It's like, it's all the same fruit. The same flavors, one fruit, okay? And here's the thing. We're going to focus on one of those qualities, one of those flavors that I actually think is the antidote to our culture of outrage. And that is the quality of what you read as self-control And here's the thing I'll tell you about that word. That is a purely legitimate translation of the word egkritia in Greek. The word self-control, both the English Standard Version and several other versions translated as self-control. That's a legit translation. But I think we usually have a problem when we see the word self-control. Here's why. Because it has the word self in it. I think we think it's something that we have to do exclusively. So it's like the other flavors, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. We go, yeah, there's no way I can do those on my own. The Spirit is going to have to help me produce those in me. But somehow when we say self-control, we go, I guess that's my job, right? And, And that's wrong. It is a balance. It is this very beautiful dance that we do with the Spirit of the living God to produce in us the things that only the Spirit can produce. You'll notice that it said the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of us working really hard and mustering up all our energy to try to pop them out somehow. We do have agency, friends. We do choose whether we make space and room for the Spirit of God to produce these things in us, but you can't produce it on your own. And it's not okay to just sit around and go, well, I guess I don't have any self-control yet, so I'm going to keep eating potato chips until I get it. Right? (laughs) That's not how it works. We cooperate with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God produces these things in us. But here's the thing. I actually like the way that the King James Version translates this word, and it's a little bit more old school, but because of that, I think we get to recover some meaning. The word egkritia that we normally translate as self-control, you can legitimately translate as the word temperance. Let me tell you why I like the word temperance. Usually, when I say the word temperance, people think of the prohibition movement in the 1920s where temperance was directly related to alcohol consumption. If you were temperate, it just meant you didn't drink. You were a teetotaler. You never got drunk. And actually, that's a good use of the word. It's a person who doesn't get drunk. 
But did you know that there's more to it than that? I love the fact that in medieval Europe, knights and soldiers would often wear an amethyst ring or pendant because amethyst symbolized temperance. And what they would have said temperance was is it allowed them to keep a cool head in the midst of battle. See, when there's the screaming and the crying and horses are neighing and there's smoke and the sound of clash of swords and shields and people are crying out, in the midst of all of that, they wanted the ability to have temperance so that they could be balanced, cool and level-headed in the midst of all of that chaos. I like that. That's the idea of temperance. It includes the idea of being free from drunkenness, but honestly, that's drunkenness wherever it occurs. Like that is the idea for me that our culture is drunk right now. It is drunk with rage and chaos and outrage. And if we are to be people of temperance, we are like the designated drivers at the party that are gonna be able to get everybody home safely, not the drunkest people that are spinning around on the ceiling fan. I don't know if you can actually do that or not. I've just seen movies. (laughs) You can understand, therefore, why in our day, temperance is such a valuable offset to our culture of outrage. See, I think that right now, the world pretty much views us as as drunk as anybody else in the room, or maybe the drunkest we are just as susceptible to the extremism and the outrage and the instantaneous orgilos as anybody else, and maybe more so because oftentimes when we do it, we think it's righteous. It's time for some temperance, brothers and sisters, in a big way. We may get angry, but we don't respond out of it. We don't blow our engines with it, and we operate out of temperance instead. Fine, Jack, what does that even look like? What does temperance even look like in the midst of the environment that you're talking about? Well, I have some ideas, but full confession on the front end, guys. I am an extreme personality. Ask anyone who knows me, set any standard you like, and I am compulsively obligated to not just meet it, but to push it so far beyond the standard that it finally bends back on itself and becomes a liability. I am an extreme personality, and I come by it honestly. If you knew my family members, like you would literally look at me and go like, wow, Jack's a moderate. (laughs) Seriously. But more and more in our culture of excess, where even our outrage is excessive, I find my father calling me to moderation and temperance. So what I would like to offer you next are just a few things in my own musings that have surfaced as things that I am seeking to be mindful of as a man of temperance in our culture of outrage. And I offer them here for you just for your own consideration. First, temperance does not make ultimatums or threats. Ultimatums by nature are extreme statements. If you don't do this, then I'm going to do this. For those of us who do a decent amount of relationship counseling, anytime you get a husband and a wife in the room and what they start with is ultimatums, what they are effectively doing is putting their finger on their relational nuclear launch button and saying, I dare you. If she doesn't do this, then I'm leaving. Oh yeah, well if he doesn't do this, then I'm leaving. Well if that's the case, then I've got, I mean like it just, it just goes back and forth, right? If you start from a place of ultimatums, there's, there's, there's no course to go forward other than one person just finally backing down and acquiescing to whatever the statement was. That is, that, that is by nature extreme. In politics, you call this brinkmanship, right? It is the idea that you bring everything right to the place where it teeters on the brink of total disaster in order to get the other person to back down. And what I will tell you is people who operate in temperance just don't do that. There's no need to. Temperance isn't like that. You know what's also interesting about ultimatums and threats? They're contagious. If you don't, then I will. Oh yeah? Well, if you don't, then I will. Well, if you, I mean, like, it's, it's, like, it's like a virus or something. You know what temperance does? 
Temperance simply does what the Spirit of God is asking it to do regardless of the saber rattling and the threats and the ultimatums and the chaos that boil all around it. It actually just doesn't care. And it doesn't need ultimatums or threats in order to be able to operate forward. And it recognizes them and seeks to operate in contrast to them. Oh, we're doing brinkmanship, not doing that. I'm going to back up and I'm going to establish a position here. This is what the Spirit of God is asking me to do. Next. Temperance does not make vows or judgments. Vows and judgments are dangerous, friends. And if you don't know what I mean by vows and judgments, I mean things that are categorical statements of reality that we define as absolutely true about God, ourselves, others, or the worlds around us. A vow is a statement of absolute reality we make about ourselves. A judgment is a statement of absolute reality that we make about God, others, or the world around us. It is when we do the job of God and we say, I define what is true not God. And if you don't know what I mean by that, look in your life. Any place that you have used the words always or never, those are vow judgment words. My spouse, never? How come she always? How come he never seems to? God, why can't you ever? How come you always? Why do you never? My boss never? Why does my boss always? Really? Your spouse never? Never, ever, never, ever, ever does that. God always does that? Always. You're the judge now of what ultimate reality is. You establish what is always or never true. You don't have that kind of power. You're a created being. Only the living God has the power to be able to say, this will always be true. But when we make vows and judgments, we make what are by nature extreme statements and they lead to outrage. If you really believe that your spouse never does that and they should, then the space between never and should is the distance of your outrage. Temperance doesn't do that. It does not make vow judgment statements. By extension, temperance is wary of either or statements as well. Either or statements tend to push us to the extreme. And I would remind you that the vast majority of the time in scripture, Jesus didn't even conform to them. Scripture is is just, it's populated with, well, which one are you, Jesus? Are you pro-Rome or pro-Israel, Jesus? Should we stone this woman or let her go, Jesus? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus? There was this attempt at maneuvering Jesus into an either or or box for the purpose of either radicalizing opposition to him or leveraging him as a cudgel to beat the other side with. And Jesus, the vast majority of the time, just sort of stepped back and said, neither, I got a third way for you. I got a better idea. You might have heard me say a couple of months ago, if you can move a king easily into the spaces that you want him to go, he's not a king, he's a pawn. As the king of kings and lord of lords, he sets the board, he sets where we go, not the other way around, friends. But we do this, don't we? Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Are you gun control or Second Amendment? Are you affirming or non-affirming? Are you anti-immigration or pro-immigration? Brothers and sisters, this may be an unpopular opinion, but I just don't think that those issues are easily as either or as our politicians and our media make them. And they are usually devoid of the complexity that the issues present, and we create this false sense of righteousness for ourselves and villainization for others when we operate within them. Now, I am not saying to do nothing or to not have opinions. I do. I act on them. I vote on them. You should know me well enough to know at this point that if I make a statement 
about something that I feel strongly about, I should be able to show you the blood and the scars on my knuckles from being in the brawl to make them so. But here's the thing. I'm just saying that temperance seeks a cooler head in the midst of that kind of extreme thinking and seeks the kind of third way that Jesus so often presented. Temperance does that. In contrast, there are also a couple of things that temperance does or has that I think we should be, I think we would do well to remember as well. First, temperance seeks to be aware of its own internal temperature. And here's what I mean by that. To have temperance, we have to be aware of the environment and the inputs around us and the effect that they are having on us. Temperance asks the question of what is making us heat up or start to feel the buzz of outrage. It defines the source and responds accordingly. To be specific, it asks the question, when you've just scrolled through the news headlines, hey, are you angrier now than when you started? Why? Is that helping you to manifest more of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is that more of the fruit of your own flesh? Is that driving you toward God and others or is that pushing you farther away? When you spend time on social media, are you more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and temperate as a result or not? Or are you more outraged? Do you feel more orgilos? What are the possible sources of outrage in your world and your life and what are you doing to temper them, brothers and sisters? It is possible that you might need to limit or fast from or even eliminate some of those sources completely. You might be shocked at how much more at peace and rest that you might feel as a result. It is worth considering. And temperate is aware, temperance is aware of the impact of those sources and those streams and their impact on us as a result. Next, temperance has a long It's not that temperance never gets angry. It's that it has a long runway before doing so. James 1, 19 and 20 backs this up when it says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, temperance can demonstrate a slow, thoughtful, measured, balanced pathway to action, even in the midst of chaos and extremes. That is not to say that it doesn't act. It does and it can. It just does so in a measured and balanced way and is not operating out of instantaneous rage as a motivator. Next, temperance insists on believing the best about others. Do you know why? Because at its core, temperance is connected to love. Remember, it's all part of the same fruit that the Spirit of God produces in us. And we learn this about love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Did you see that? Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things all things. It believes the best about the hearts of those around us and does not seek to easily categorize people into labels or political affiliations or social groups. It recognizes that fundamentally in our world, as followers of Jesus, we remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. By extension, temperance is love's close cousin and it does the same kinds of things. It assumes that even those at the extremes of any situation need balance. 
They need bridge building. They are worthy of having someone believe that God loves and values them, even in the midst of bad decision-making, abuse, the drunkenness of extreme thinking, or slavery of addiction. Temperance is able to operate on the belief that every person is worthy of grace and dignity and honor, even if you have to stand and oppose them in order to champion others. Do you see what I'm talking about? Temperance does that. Finally, temperance trusts the work of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I think it is good for us to remember that temperance trusts the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and the lives of others and the world around us. We get awfully out of balance when we shoulder the responsibility to try to make people do or think or believe things. Those are most often the voices of fleshly, worldly, human power, and they seldom have a history of achieving good ends. Those kinds of power nearly always, nearly always, I'm careful of my vows and judgments, right? Nearly always have a history of corrupting those people who wield or seek to wield them. And the way they are why the Bible tells us not to seek them. Rather, we are reminded that for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when our obedience is complete. That doesn't mean we do nothing friends. It just means that we remember that real change comes because the Spirit of God who is in us and is at work in the world around us is going to actually bring about the things that God talks about in his idea of shalom, and not because we demand or cudgel or force people into our way of doing things or thinking about things along the way. I have a friend who has prayed faithfully for her husband for 40 years. He doesn't know Christ, and she recognizes that she could try to force, to manipulate, to demand that he bows his knee. But she doesn't. Instead, she trusts the work and the timing of the Holy Spirit in that regard. She faithfully prays for him. She loves him. She serves him. She fights for him in every way that she can, whenever and wherever she can. That is temperance. She is temperate. She's not perfect. She would tell you that. She messes up. She would tell you that. Her husband would tell you that. But she's temperate. She's always trying to pull back to that place where she doesn't speak in the kinds of orgilos-oriented outrage that pervades everything else in the world around her. So, now here, what we are going to do is, we're going to do something that we do a lot at Trinity. We are going to give all of us an opportunity to pray. And we are going to do that as an act of hearing and responding to the Spirit of God in obedience. We're going to do this by doing three things this morning, and I would just invite you to consider them as we do. First, we are going to ask if the Spirit of God would identify for us an area where temperance is not present in our lives. You know that disciple-making is a big deal for us here at Trinity Church. I would say if you are discipling someone, it's the first place to start. Where is the Spirit of God not present in your own life or in theirs? If you are being discipled by someone, you should plan to be able to ask them and have them ask you the same question. Where in your world, in the places where God has already planted you, is there the drunken chaos of our world? And second, what is the Spirit of God asking you to do to be the voice and the spirit of temperance in its midst? And then I'm going to ask, Father, what is one thing you are asking us to do this week 
to be the flavor of temperance in whatever that environment is, and then I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond to it. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna ask um, our elders, the members of our prayer team, to go ahead and come down front, and when we're finished praying, I'll bless and dismiss you, and you can come down and pray with uh, anybody that's down here if you would like to pray further. So prayer team members, elders, deacons, if you guys would come down. And for the rest of us, I'm just gonna ask if you would bow your head. Just eliminate the distractions. Don't worry about people looking around at you or whatever. Close your eyes. And let's go before our Father. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, your Son, the matchless name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who built bridges to us when we were spinning out of control in our own chaos and sin and brought us back Father, we desire to be agents of your kingdom in the world and to do likewise, to be the voice of temperance in the relationships, the environments, and the world around us that you have placed us in. And so we come before you now in prayer. And at the outset, we say to anything that is demonic or satanic, any enemy of God's or ours or our households, we tell you to stop speaking, to stop working, and to stop listening right now in the name of Jesus. We tell you to go straight to the feet of Jesus right now. And we tell you not to communicate with anything on the way and not to return to us or to our households in any fashion. You are not welcome. But Father, your voice is welcome and we want to hear it. And we don't want to even hear our own voices. And so Father, just in a couple of moments of quiet, I ask that you would lay your hand upon my brothers and my sisters. Father, that you would bring them to a place of center and rest where they could hear you. Abba, you know the places where we walk, where we work, where we play, where we rest. You know the parcel of your kingdom that you have entrusted to our care, whether that's our neighborhood, whether that's a network of people, whether it's a need we're seeking to meet, whether it's the people in our family or the people in our workplace or the people at the gym. Father, you know where you have placed us. So Father, I ask right now in the name of Jesus, would you show my brothers and sisters, Father, where is a place of chaos and drunkenness and orgilos and rage in their life where you would ask them to step in as the voice of temperance, Father? Would you show them now? And Father with those faces that they see, with that environment that they hear. Father, whether that is family coming in from out of town for Thanksgiving, you know that one relative that always just seems to stir everything up, whatever that might be. Father, would you tell them what is one thing you are asking them to do to be the voice of temperance in the midst of that situation this week? Brothers and sisters, I would remind you that it might take courage. It might ask you to actually not say anything when you normally do. The Spirit of God might ask you to say something and you normally don't. The Spirit of God might ask you to serve someone in a way that you wouldn't. Or to love someone when you believe that they're not worthy of it. So I just want to give this space if you will respond to what the Spirit of the living God is asking you to do this week and tell him. It might sound something like this. Father, I just confess to you right now that I have given way to my own outrage. I have not been temperate. And I'm sorry. But I turn away from that right now in the name of Jesus. To the best of my ability, Father, I repent of it. I ask you to cleanse me of that. Father, that you would restore back to me my temperance so that I could be the voice and the flavor of your spirit in the places where you have sent me and called me. Father, I ask for the courage to take that step, no matter what it means, 
this week. And I ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I would remind you that whenever you hear something in prayer, should not cause you fear, shame, or guilt. That is not how your father speaks to his children. It should not cause you fear, shame, or guilt, right? Number two, it should not discord with scripture. God doesn't violate his word or his character. And number three, it should draw you closer to God and to others. His desire is always to draw us closer to himself and to one another. But if you feel like the spirit of God is leading you to be the voice of temperance in a place, in an environment, in a relationship, I would encourage you to do it. And I'd love to bless you as we go. Father, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters, and I pray in the name of Jesus that you would lift their heads. Father, that you would fill them with your spirit, that as they go from this place, Father, that they might go with a renewed sense of your strength to be all that you are asking and calling them to be in the environments and the world around them by your spirit. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.